that has sort of captured your attention, maybe captured your imagination lately. All right, think about a story that's captured your imagination and turn to someone and talk about it. It could be a true story, it could be something from the news, it could be something from a novel, from a movie, it could be fiction, nonfiction. Just think about a story that sort of captured your attention. All right, turn to somebody and talk about that for just a minute. All right, I'm going to call you back. I know we could tell stories all day, couldn't we? That's super fun. I've got a story. Um, as you disregard me. Yeah, that's fine. <clears throat> <laughs> Thank you, Carla. I've been uh, captivated the past month now by this story um, that kind of unfolded in the global news. Yes, the cave story. Did anybody else share that story? Okay, all right, wow. Okay, I've been captivated by this story about these 12 boys in Thailand and their coach um, who after soccer practice went to explore a local whoa, a nearby cave and um, they sorry that wasn't on purpose and then the rains came it's monsoon season and the waters rose so quickly and they had to go further and further back in the cave and they were lost for 10 days before anyone even discovered them they were about to give up hope on this rescue and folks had flown in from all over the world and divers were trying to go underwater and and if you, you know if you've tracked this story one of the divers actually um, died because he ran out of oxygen in his in his tank and and insanely then it, it was another eight days before they even could start rescuing them it was 18, 18 days total um, that before the last ones were out of this cave and as the stories come out, you know, there's a lot of ways to spin a story like that. And I've been so fascinated, in part because these are boys. They were age 11 to 16. Um, and they're an unlikely group of boys. This wasn't like an elite soccer club. Um, these, were, these were kids hanging out with the coach. And, and as some of their stories came out, um, you know, you, you wonder who gets to tell the narrative. But there was one piece that was barely mentioned in one article, um, oh sorry, these were some of the like fun pictures, right? Because now they're out of the hospital. After they were rescued, they had to be kept in solitary, um, not solitary confinement, but in um, quarantine so that they could make sure that they didn't bring with them any number of particular diseases that they could have contracted there because in the cave, during the period of time before anyone found them, they were licking water off the walls in order to survive and they were sharing the little snacks that they had that they happened to have with them with each other um, and part of the story that came out is they cared for each other so well during that time that they were not nearly as 
malnourished as they could have been, and even as psychologists are, are giving them psych evals, um, they were not nearly as traumatized as they could have been because of how well they cared for each other in the cave. And one story, um, I, I don't know if you happen to catch this particular article in the New York Times, but it shared the story of, of this boy. His name is Adul Seman. And did anybody catch this story? He's 14 years old. He's multilingual. He speaks five languages. And when the first diver who discovered them 10 days in popped up out of the water, it was a British diver, all right? And all of a sudden, here's these boys and their coach here. They were lost in total darkness. And this person pops up out of nowhere and has a light. And it's shocking, because they had been several days at that point without any light, because they had flashlights. but they were. And, and so this Adul, 14 years old, he said the only thing that, you know, came to me to say was, hello, right? And it turns out it's a British diver who speaks English. And so they have this conversation. And Adul turned out to be the translator for the group as this international rescue team, you know, was coming and showing up and speaking to them in all languages. And this 14-year-old boy was the one who sort of held the, the group and who was um, the one making this happen. Adul is a refugee in Thailand. He's stateless. His, he has no papers for any country, actually. His parents brought him from Myanmar when he was six years old. So the last eight years he's been living, this is so fascinating, one line in one story, I don't know much more than this. His parents brought him to the steps of a Baptist church in Thailand. And this church took him in, and he's been living in this church as a refugee since he was six years old. This stateless boy, five languages. I'm not here to tell you that he follows Jesus Christ. I'm sure he's a Buddhist. And somehow, somehow, when I hear a dual story, and I hear of his courage, and I hear of his care for his friends, and I think somehow, somehow that's part of our story. Somehow, the goodness and love and gentleness of God is caught up in a kid like a duel. Um, somehow the care that's been extended to him and the love of his, the self-sacrificial love of his parents and the self-giving love of this church and the love of this community and of this soccer team that I want to call the love of God. We share a story. We're, we're, we're somehow caught up in this kind of story too. Josh said as we entered into this teaching series on Ephesians that we want to think about this as a dialogue between Mountainside and Ephesians and wonder about God's call on us. And when I think about that in light of Ephesians chapter 3, I think these questions have, have come to me. Which story are we living in? Which story will define us? Because there's a lot of ways it turns out there's a lot of ways to tell this story. The first three chapters of Ephesians are all about Paul telling this group of people, this, this young church, in this, you know, this pagan land, um, telling this church who they are. He's not addressing a controversy. He's not giving instruction. He's just telling them who they are. And then the, the next three, what they are now is three chapters, the next part of the letter is then giving them some, here's then how to live in light of who you are. And we'll get there. 
All right, we'll get there and we'll wrestle with that too. There's plenty to wrestle with in Ephesians. But these first three chapters are just about restoring their lives. This is the story you've heard. Now, here it is again. Here it is again. Ephesians is some of the most advanced writing in the New Testament, like some of the, the most advanced theology, we might say. This, this thinking and wrestling and living out the way of Jesus. And Paul is saying, here's the best I got. Here it is. And Ephesians 3, he, he's almost tripping over himself um, in, in talking about what this is about. Aaron said last week from Ephesians 2, that God has done something radically different in the world and has put you in that story. It's God's gift. And God's gift that Paul is building up to here in, in 2, and then, and then we recap it again in chapter 3 because it's so, so important, is that out of these disparate groups, God has made one. Out of, and in, in the Jewish imagination, it was Jews and everyone else. Right? So out of all the groups of the earth and the Jews, God has somehow broken down a wall of hostility and made us one. God has done the unthinkable, the unimaginable through Jesus Christ. So we're picking up the story in chapter 3. And I want to invite us again to stand as we listen to this word together from Paul speaking to the Ephesians and, and through them to us. This is why I, Paul, am a prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles. You've heard, of course, about the responsibility to distribute God's grace, which God gave to me for you, right? God showed me his secret plan and a revelation, as I mentioned briefly before. When you read this, you'll understand my insight into the secret plan about Christ. Earlier generations didn't know this hidden plan that God has now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets through the Spirit. This plan is that the Gentiles would be co-heirs and parts of the same body, and that they would share with the Jews in the promises of God in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I became a servant of the gospel because of the grace that God showed me through the exercise of his power. God gave his grace to me, the least of all God's people, to preach the good news about the immeasurable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. God sent me to reveal the secret plan that had been hidden since the beginning of time by God, who created everything. God's purpose is now to show the rulers and powers in the heavens the many different varieties of his wisdom through the church. This was consistent with the plan he had from the beginning of time that he accomplished through Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ, we have bold and confident access to God through faith in him. So then, I ask you not to become discouraged by what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. This is why I kneel before the Father. Every ethnic group in heaven or earth or on earth is recognized by him. I ask that he will strengthen you in your inner selves from the riches of his glory through the Spirit. I ask that Christ will live in your hearts through faith. As a result of having strong roots in love, I ask that you'll have the power to grasp love's width and length, height and depth, together with all believers. I ask that you'll know the love of Christ 
that is beyond knowledge so that you will be filled entirely with the fullness of God. Glory to God, who's able to do far beyond all that we could ask or imagine by his power at work within us. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and always. Amen. I think that Paul wants us to like shout and clap at the end of this, all right? So can we get some kind of excitement? All right, thank you. All right, be seated for now. You'll have a chance to get up and shout again later. The, this letter is astounding. And Paul's almost saying, I kind of want to stop here, but wait, there's more. So it's coming, all right? But this, this, this pause is so important for Paul because his life has been caught up in this story. His life has been caught up in this story. So let's look back at a little bit. Um, this uh, translation had said kind of like hidden rescue plan, and, and the word there is mystery. So I went back and kind of put this mystery in here. This mystery that Paul is talking about. He, he's talking about himself and his story. This is sort of like an aside about Paul. So he says, hey, all that that I was just talking about, about, about God reconciling the people as one, God making us one. Um, you know this is my story, right? And so he kind of steps aside for a second to say, yeah, I, I have authority here to tell you this. I have authority to give you this teaching. That authority is, is only because it's been given by God. And this mystery is something I could not have figured this out by myself. It's, in, it's counterintuitive. It's against everything that I was taught to believe and that I was trained to teach as kind of a religious specialist, okay? Only God could have given me this mystery. And something about this mystery from God, given by God, couldn't let Paul go. He was consumed by it. This mystery that somehow we hold a common kinship with one another. That what God is doing, the story of what God is doing, has always been so much bigger than the Jews. And yet, the people of God always want to shrink that down instead of expanding it. We always want to draw lines about who's in and who's out. We always want to make God small and God's gift smaller than God, through the scriptures, reveals to us that it is. This mystery is that the Gentiles would be co-heirs and parts of the same body, and they would share with the Jews in the promises of God in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And this is the key for Paul. In Christ. When Paul talks about being in Christ, he's trying to give us a new imagination. Our whole life now is restoried in Christ. And in Christ, all things, he says in 1 Corinthians, all things are yours in Christ. All things, whether on heaven or on earth, all things are yours. Y'all, I have no idea what that means. It's beyond me. And that's where I want to live. I don't ever want to end up in a place where I've got this figured out. Because I think what Paul is trying to communicate us to us is 
This is mind-blowing. And if it's not mind-blowing, then we've forgotten how big the story is. In Christ, here's something else, we have bold and confident access to God through faith in Him. Not only are all things yours in Christ, but in Christ, we can come before God with anything because we have access. Now, some of this is so important because if you were an Ephesian at this time and you thought that if I've become a Christian, I also have to become a Jew, which was a whole other piece, right? The whole book of, uh, letter of Galatians was written about that and saying that's not what you have to do. But someone might be telling you a story that in order to truly worship God, you've got to go to Jerusalem. You've got to go in this temple. But P.S. in this temple, there's this, there's this wall. When you get in... That if you're not a Jew, if you're a Gentile, you got to stay out beyond this wall. You can't go beyond it. And in fact, there are pillars set up all along this wall in, in, in Herod's temple, in the second temple, that tell you, like, beware going past the wall. You know, basically saying God will strike you down. Or anyone inside the wall has permission to kill you if you're not a Jew and you go past the wall. And Paul is saying, he said in chapter 2, that wall is irrelevant. And not only that here, but you have access to God. Access beyond that wall and beyond the walls further still into the, the Holy of Holies. Access. Open. It's available. Uh, a number of you have been to Homeboy Industries, um, Homegirl Cafe, any kind of uh, array of some of their work, and some of you have read some of the writings of Father Greg Boyle and his work with gangs in L.A. over the past 40 years. And his um, latest book is on the radical power of kinship. That's the subtitle. The radical power of kinship. And part of the story that he's telling, by telling us the story of gang members, by humanizing these people who are so systematically dehumanized in our world, in our context, by humanizing them, by telling their stories, and by even, he, he uses humor really in a very specific way to kind of open us up to each other's humanity. And he says, through that we have this access to God and to one another through kinship. This is a mural that was painted um, on the side of, of kind of their, their central um, headquarters now and, and Homegirl Cafe. And back in January, Ari and Jen um, organized a trip and we took some students and some adults and some parents and went down to um, take a tour and to listen to stories. Uh, we also then took the train down and we visited Marla's clinic and we've shared about that a little bit. Um, but when we were at Homeboy, our tour guide there was Gary. And Gary was this just incredible figure and this is, this is part of what they often do in order to help tell the story is they have somebody who's a newer trainee tell their own story as they give you a tour around. And Gary had been at Homeboy about six months, and he was telling us how this radical kinship had changed everything about his life. And he was um, telling us about how it had changed his relationships with other people, and it has changed his relationships with his family and with his kids. And it was, it was kind of a, I wrote to parents afterwards, it was a PG-13 visit. Um, he kept talking about how he's a badass parent and how much he, he loves his kids. And he shows up in their life. 
And he could call himself that because he didn't have that kind of parent. And he knew that by showing up in their life, it was going to be totally different for them. And it was the love and the personhood that had been shown him there in that space and by those people that had changed everything for him. Boyle writes this, we settle for purity and piety when we're being invited to an exquisite holiness. We settle for the fear-driven when love longs to be our engine. We settle for a puny, vindictive God when we are being nudged always closer to this wildly inclusive, larger-than-any-life God. We allow our sense of God to atrophy, to shrink. We settle for the illusion of separation when we're endlessly asked to enter into kinship with all. Isn't that beautiful? I just want to sit with that one. So which story are we living in? Which story will define us? Is it, is it the puny, small, vindictive stories about God and who God is? And who the church is? Because that's, that's where this is going, right? This story is about the church. It's about the church who is called Christ's body. It's about us who gather every week, who gather around this table of reconciliation. Oof, I hit the wrong one. Okay, there we go. Which story will define us? Um, Ephesus had its own stories. Uh, this is Artemis, also known as Diana, um, the goddess whose shrine was in Ephesus. People would come from miles and miles around from across the known world to visit the shrine to worship Artemis, um, a goddess of a number of things, among them fertility, um, and animals, I don't know. And, and part of her story is a violent story, as is often true of the Greek gods and the Roman gods, right, that the world is built around violence. We were, last Sunday night, um, with the uh, Pasadena group that the Nyes were hosting, and there's this beautiful... Um, liturgy that that group is using and, and reading through this, the book of Acts and a commentary on Acts by Willie James Jennings, an African-American um, Bible scholar. And, and we talked a bit about the myth of redemptive violence and how it made its way, it makes its way through, through so many stories, right? And it was the story that the Ephesians knew, it was the story that the early church knew, and how in the presence of the risen Christ in Acts chapter 1, they still were wondering, okay, but Jesus, now you're going to do the whole military victory thing, right? Like, okay, Jesus, now you're going to put down Rome. Now you're going to stomp our enemies' faces. Now violence is still going to be the way. Like, they still didn't get it, even in the midst of the crucified and risen Christ. And so the story Paul offers, the Ephesians, and and to the early church, um, there in Acts, even before the giving of the Holy Spirit, and to our church, to Mountainside today, is that in Christ, when we're located in the person of Christ, it brings a different kind of transformation. A different kind of unity. And we've been constantly trying to re-narrate and undo that story since then. So let's look back at this next part. You all, these last verses in chapter 3 are just astounding. 
Paul's kneeling before the Father. He's setting up this act of worship. And in this worship of this God, instead of Artemis, instead of the God of the Ephesians, every ethnic group on heaven, in heaven or on earth is recognized by him. I asked, here's the series of I asks. First he asks that God will strengthen you. He asks that Christ will live in their hearts through faith. And asks that we'd have the power to grasp love's width and length, height and depth, together with all believers. That we'd know the love of Christ that's beyond knowledge and be filled entirely with the fullness of God. Paul is running out of words here to describe the depth of his prayers and what he's hoping that they'll get. Right? I hope that you'll get that this story is so unlike every other story you've heard then I'm just going to keep adding adjectives. I'm just going to keep adding images. I'm going to mix up my images. He's using family images and, and architectural images and spatial images and, and agricultural images. I mean, all kind of mixed up in this one huge mixed metaphor because he can't, he can't control how vast this story is. We can't exhaust the riches and the depth of God's love and somehow... The access of the fullness of God is available to us. And then, this doxology. Glory to God. Glory. Doxology. Glory to God who's able to do far beyond all that we could ask or imagine by his power at work within us. Glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations forever. And always. I wonder about this imagination piece. I wonder about what are the impossibles that God could make possible? What are the impossibles that God could make possible? And I think we have to start with our own stories on this, right? And one of the stories we've been wrestling with is some of the realities of racialization and white supremacy and white privilege. Um, and how it's had an impact on us in various ways, depending on, on who we are and, and what we've experienced in our lives. Um, I had the privilege recently of being in Alabama, and um, I was a couple of hours in Montgomery, so I drove down to Montgomery to see the, um, the new lynching memorial, um, which Trisha mentioned a few months back. And it is as, as haunting as you might expect, and it's the only memorial, it's the only memory the only storytelling in our country that's been set up specifically to say, hey, these, these acts happened among us. And in particular, in this particular time, post-Civil War, that, um, and up through you know, the 1940s, 50s, even 60s, there was this particular time when this was a particular kind of terrorism that we've tried to erase from our history. And specifically the lynching of black bodies. And so the way that it's organized is by state and by county. And so I found the county in which I was born and where I grew up, because I grew up in the South. And so I found that county and a list of names and dates of known lynchings. These are just the ones that are on record that had happened in that, in that place. And then I walked on and I explored a little more, and um, I found the county where... My dad grew up, and where his dad grew up, in Fleming County. 
and I had a memory there. Um, I never met my grandfather on my dad's side. I never met my dad's dad. He died the year I was born in the 70s. And um, I only knew him through any stories, of which there weren't many, and through some pictures. And I remember one time my aunts had some pictures they were going through. And one of them, I was a kid, and I asked, what is that? And it was a picture of my grandfather when he was um, a kid. And he had on a white robe with a hood. And they said, yeah, that was his KKK robe. And I don't remember having much more of a conversation about that, but that image of my grandfather came back to me when I was visiting this memorial. Because there's the name of a man here, Grant Smith, in 1920, who was lynched in that county. And I got to wonder if my grandfather was there. Now, what do you do with a story like that, right? What do you do with a story like that? And here's the thing. I think we have to tell the stories that haven't been told in order to be freed from them. Because when we tell them, they no longer have power over us. The power of sin, even generational sin, it doesn't have power to bind us. When we tell it, when we free it, when we release it to God and to the love of God and the restoration and reconciliation of God. And I think there's something there for us about the stories we need to find and tell to be freed by them. I was reminded of another story um, this past week. My family was out of town. I was doing some work in the house and doing things that I don't like, like fixing a sink. And um, I, So I was listening to Hamilton again, and um, it's a powerful story. It's a re-narrating of history, right? And, and a story that's been captivating on so many levels because it reimagines some things that happen, and it reimagines a cast, a multi-ethnic cast instead of an all-white cast, and, and it reimagines some stories and some music. It's beautiful. Without a doubt, though, I mean, Hamilton's a tragedy, and Alexander Hamilton, he's a crummy guy. You don't walk away thinking, oh, I just love Alexander Hamilton, right? You, you're just, there's this pit, pit in your stomach about him, at least for me. He's a jerk, and yet Eliza comes out as the true hero in this story as Lin-Manuel Miranda has painted her. And part of what's beautiful, she gets the last word, and the last word is about you don't get to tell your own story, <laughs> ironically. But part of the, but I think one of the most powerful things, okay, so Anna and I got to see this in January, and um, we're in the top row, and, and it was amazing. We were in the room where it happens, though. And <laughs> afterwards, Anna asked, okay, she said, all right, I cried through like the whole thing, Dad. When did you cry? And I said, you know, I was on the verge of tears a few times, but I know I cried during the unimaginable. And she was like, that's it? <laughs> I'm the worst. But this, this song about the unimaginable, if you're not familiar with, with the soundtrack um, or, or haven't seen it, I mean, it, Alexander Hamilton has done the worst, and this family's been ravished by betrayal, by infidelity, by the death of the son. And this song is about this process of restoring, of reconciling, 
and somehow forgiving. And Eliza forgives. And she takes the path of the story that's unlikely. She takes the path of forgiveness. And they sing about, it's other people singing, watching them. And they say, can you imagine? Can you imagine a forgiveness like that? It's unimaginable. We don't even have words for it because it's beyond us to think how someone could forgive in that way. And I want to say that's a parable for us. It's a parable for us, right? Isaiah 61, this is unimaginable. Just quickly, the Lord's Spirit is upon me. The Lord's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the release for captives, liberation for prisoners, on and on and on. This is unimaginable. This is going to be the work that I'm going to do. And Jesus comes and says, this passage is about me. This is the story. This is the story. So as we wrap this up, are we telling the best story? Are we telling the story of the church as the fullness of God? Do we dare to proclaim that we are the fullness of God? That the superabundance of God is what defines us? We we drill in on stories of scarcity. There's not enough. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. There's not enough, there's not enough good people. There's not enough justice. I, and I, I spin on, these, on scarcity all the time. Paul reminds us the story that we're invited into, the story that we're defined by is a story of not only enough, of superabundance. Of you can't even imagine how abundant. You can't even imagine how big. You can't even imagine... How broad is the abundance of the Spirit available to you? The abundance of the power of God to you? The abundance of the love of Christ that's available to you? That somehow in God's economy, there's not just a little bit. There's not just enough. But there's more than you could ever ask or imagine. I don't pretend to have my head around that, or my heart around that, or my body around that but I'm invited to be defined by that story. And that somehow the church is the means by which that story gets told and enacted for the world, right? Christ is going to do these things in us to strengthen us, to live in our hearts, to give us power, to know and experience the love of Christ. In a minute, we're going to stand up and shout these last words. Um, but I want to read a passage for us first because the kids aren't back and I have time to. This is from Rachel Held Evans, who some of you are familiar with her writing, and um, she, she tells stories in this particular book, Searching for Sunday, about leaving the church, leaving the evangelical church in particular, and sort of experiencing what she missed and rediscovering God and then rediscovering church specifically rediscovering the people of God, the body of Christ, and how we, essentially, how we live this story in the world and embody it for one another. And she invites, really towards the end of the book, this, um, for us to turn a mirror on the church. And she's pulling from, she's adapting something from Barbara Brown Taylor about um, loving our own bodies. And she says, let's turn this on the church and see if we could actually love this body. 
okay? And not just here, mountainside body, but the, the broader body of the church, which is sometimes harder for us to do. Here we are. This is the church. Here she is. Lovely, irregular, sometimes sick, sometimes well. This is the body like no other that God has shaped and placed in the world. Jesus lives here. This is his soul's address. There's a lot to be thankful for, all things considered. She's taken a beating, the church. Every day she meets the gates of hell and she prevails. Every day she serves, stumbles, injures, and repairs. That she has healed is an underrated miracle. That she gives birth is beyond reckoning. Maybe it's time to make peace with her. Maybe it's time to embrace her, flawed as she is. Maybe it's time to smile back. I love this invitation that we look to each other and that we look to each other across the various ways the body of Christ is represented and enacted in the world in all its imperfections, in all its sometimes ways that we are, are shocked um, or disappointed, and in some ways that are beautiful. You all, somehow the body of Christ in Thailand, uh, right across the border from Myanmar, has embraced a little boy for the past eight years who, who, who then was part of a, a, a rescue. <laughs> Um, of his team members. Somehow the body of Christ is bigger and broader than we imagine. This is the story we're wrapped up in because of who Jesus is. Um, it's that big. And as the children come, I want us to stand and shout together these words with Paul because we're invited to. Come on in, kids. And if you can read, read with us. Ready? Glory to God, who is able to do far beyond all that we could ask or imagine by God's power at work within us. Glory to God in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and always. Amen. Say it again. Glory to God who is able to do far beyond all that we could ask or imagine by God's power at work within us. Glory to God in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and always. Amen. Hallelujah. You can be seated for a moment. We're going to come to the table next. Ooh, sorry. You know, the first thing that the world knew about the early Christians was that they ate together. That they ate together. Um, this is a meal of remembering a particular story. And we rehearse this story week after week. And we say specific words, all right? What are the words we say when, when someone gives us the body or, 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 the, or the bread? We say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. 
And this is the blood of Christ shed for you. This is for you. This is for you. This is for us. This Christ gives to us. We remember together that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night that he gave the gift of his body, he was gathered with his friends and his betrayer, and he took bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body. And whenever you do this, whenever you share this, remember me, because it's for you. It's for you. And then he also took the cup. He lifted it up and he blessed it. And then he poured it out. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. It's my body. It's my blood. It's shed for you. Whenever you remember, whenever you tell this story, remember me. So this morning, as we rehearse this story again, let's remember that this story is it's about us and for us. Um, and it's our gift to the world, because it's a huge, huge story. And as we worship here, we are the church giving glory to God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. If servers would come, I will serve you first and then we will um, come to the table together.